The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, August 26th, 2023. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter with the 8th Digest of this third volume, covering Monday, August 21st through Friday, August 25th, 2023. Movie Monday. Quick thoughts, very quick thoughts, on a bunch of the big movies, the big geek movies out this year so far that I've seen. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Guardians 3, Indiana Jones 5, Barbie, Oppenheimer, and the Blue Beetle movie. These are quick thoughts. These are just bullet points. I don't know if it's going to spoil you on anything, so if you don't want to listen, don't listen. (laughs) Skip ahead to the next segment. Um, But again, I've been sitting on these notes for a while, and none of them, well, I could talk in depth about each of them, But I felt, um, you know, some of them have been out for a while. You've probably seen them. You've maybe heard other reviews or uh, read some reviews and you have your thoughts about them. So I don't really need to go too in-depth. So that's why I kind of bunched this all together. So we'll start with Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I re-watched the first two in anticipation of watching this on Disney+. Plus. I know when I initially watched the first Guardians, I wasn't so hot on it. The second one, I definitely was not hot on that movie. Still not. Um, But I think I've come around a little bit on the first one because it feels the most pure in its intention. You know, it's a, it has a story. It's about a group of assholes who are just trying to save the day, come together, learn how to be a team. And that dynamic worked. That dynamic worked for that first movie. The problem is, in the second movie, that notion of them being assholes uh, kind of overtook the concept. And now suddenly they couldn't work together. Everybody has to have um, confrontations and silly jokes and angst and, and arguing. And it just, you know, that whole second movie, I just wasn't, it, it's too jokey for me. And even if there was a story in there, it it never really fully developed, I think. Don't even get me started on the supposed father-son relationship between Peter and Yondu, which I think the second movie was, that was like so ham-fisted. I just, it just wasn't for me. The third one, I gotta admit, was good. I think some of it is because it goes back to what the first movie was trying to do, that All of these characters are in a very dark place and they have to find a way to get back to each other again by helping um, Rocket Rocket Raccoon. So uh, I think that dynamic, that drive, that impulse uh, made this movie closer to the first one than the second one and it worked for me. Uh, One of the true pluses of all of these movies is um, how colorful it actually is compared to other Marvel movies. I mean, there's actual color and there's actual like, you know, when you look at the screen, you know, there's a lot of things to look at, even if it's not always in my mind, it's it's played for different reasons, you know, sometimes for jokes or whatever. 
with this third movie, we got a lot of Rocket uh, Raccoon's backstory. You can see all of the inspiration from Wii 3 and Plague Dogs and just, you know, anything anthropomorphic. Uh, I think the High Evolutionary is pretty great as a villain. You know, a villain who was actually a villain, not someone that you side with. I love that. Uh, it was cool to see the Ravagers again. Starhawk and, and the other... Uh, members of that OG Guardians team. However, they don't really do anything, right? You see them, you, they're for the fans because they're like, oh, there they are, that's the original Guardians of the Galaxy. But they don't really do anything. Stallone as Starhawk never really made sense to me. He doesn't do, he feels out of place. Um, I don't know. I, I, I was excited to see them. I was hoping they would be part of the movie more. But they really weren't, you know. Um, the team having to come together to rescue Rocket, like I said, all of that was really good. Some good emotional stuff. Uh, some good stuff at the end. Like, all that really worked for me. The stuff that didn't work for me, I didn't really care about the whole Mantis and Drax thing. And um, this whole thing that Peter Quill is trying to make Gamora think that she's the the Gamora that he knows, that just doesn't make sense. She's a Gamora from a whole other time. She's not the same person. Um, that didn't work for me. Uh, I could care less about Kraglin and, and Yondu's arrow. You know, he's just in it because he's the director's brother, of course. And that goes the same for like Nathan Fillion or the director's wife or Seth Green's wife. You know, it's like tons of nepotism all over this movie that I guess general audiences are like, oh, yay, Nathan Fillion. It's like, you know, everybody trying to make Nathan Fillion just, you know, have eight more encores of his career when he's done, you know, like he's done. Nobody cares about Nathan Fillion in terms of who he is in the geek culture. He's a footnote now and everybody keeps trying to bring him back just like, um, Will Wheaton, Kevin Smith, you know, Chris Hardwick, like just all these people who like their time is done. Can we just move on from them, please? Um, Adam Warlock is exactly what I thought they were going to do with him. You know, they were going to make him Adam Warlock in appearance and in name. But of course, they were going to do something goofy with him and waste his potential. Marvel does that quite a lot. The endless needle drops um, that made sense in the first one. I feel like they just lose their impact in this one because it's almost like the soundtrack is the unofficial, you know, eighth member of the Guardians or whatever. And and to a point, that makes sense, right? You know, we always talk about soundtracks for movies and things like that. And it certainly has a history considering Peter Quill's past. But it was just like one right after the other and after the other after the other. And I was like, okay, that's enough already. A lot of people were really excited about the big hall fight scene near the end, right? Everyone gushing over it, how cool it was to see, you know, the the, the, the way that it was filmed and the way it was put together. And I feel like, okay, but we should always get that. We should have gotten that as soon as they became a team in the first one. Like the second movie should have been all of that. These are supposed to be some of the baddest villains or baddest characters in the universe. And they get punked way too many times. So I was like, 
No, I'm not going to be excited over one scene that we should be getting all the time. You know, they should be a very, very scary team, deadly warriors, put them together. Even if they're quirky and assholes, they should be unstoppable because, you know, Rocket is smart, Groot and Drax are powerful, Gamora and Nebula are deadly, Peter just has, like, sort of really good instincts, you know, more or less. Um, yeah, I, you know, so one scene, while it was fine, I want more of that throughout all, throughout all of them, but we don't ever really get that. In fact, I think there's a lot of things that they just, like the whole um, going to Orgo Corp was just too long, and Counter Earth, like too long, trying to be goofy, cut some of that stuff out, give us more Ravager stuff, let us see what Starhawk can do, let us see what Michael Rosenbaum as... What's that guy? Uh, Martin X, I think his name is. I don't know. Like, let us get get rid of the jokey stuff and dig into the larger Guardians characters and, and mythology. So, you know, we're done now, I assume, with a trilogy. Who knows where it goes from here? Those are my thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Let's go to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I talked about my rankings before where I said, for me... In order of least to best, I think Temple's at the bottom, then Kingdom, then Raiders, and at the top for me is Last Crusade. Now that I've seen Dial of Destiny, I would put it right smack in the middle between Raiders and Kingdom. When I started to watch this, I got real scared that I thought it would be uh, higher than Raiders for me. It had this weird potential to be that way, you know, looking at Indiana Jones at the end of his life versus being introduced to Indiana Jones in Raiders. You know, there's like this nice bookend going on. Um, it it had uh, an amalgamation of all the movies. Uh, eventually, though, once I got done, I was like, no, it, it, for me, it is in third place right between Raiders and Kingdom. Now, for this not being a Spielberg-directed movie... It was fairly decent, I have to admit. Yes, I do agree with some of the reviews that said there's a little bit of the magic that's lost that you get with a Spielberg film. But then again, he did direct uh, Kingdom of the Crystal, Crystal Skull, and that also had moments where you were like, what's going on here? Um, but for the most part, I really enjoyed this movie. I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge was really fun. I quite enjoyed her performance. I enjoy her acting style, her presence, her aura. I wish Mads Mikkelsen as the big bad was more big bad. There didn't seem to really be anything to him. So, yeah, that felt a little flat for me. The opening sequence was fine. You know, it was over the top, as it should be. Some of the chase scenes when he's older, also fine. Um, I think the story had a lot of premise, and a lot of the information that we got concerning his life and concerning Marion and Mutt, all of that is great. Like, it, it really has, like, the mix of being the swan song for this character, or I should say, for the actor playing this character. But eventually, as I was watching it, it did start to falter, and I was like, oh, okay, I can see where this is... Uh, not quite living up to the potential. Things like, um, I was disappointed when they actually used the dial. 
Uh, and the whole ending of the movie to where they go, you know, this is a movie about Indiana Jones at the end of his life, and they don't use the time travel device to go through his moments, like, at all, or the other movies, you know? He even says to Helena that if he could go back in time, what he would do is go and stop his son from enlisting in the war, and how that would change his life, you know, from there. So even if they go back in time to where they go, and and they do that whole scene, which was fine, I guess, you know, Indiana, I, I did talk before about how Indiana Jones always finds himself in the middle of history, right? So it makes sense to go back to whatever this dial is, you know, to that time, he's right smack in the middle of history. Okay, great. But for him to want to stay there didn't feel right to me. I rather, I wish they would have traveled forward and as he's going and bouncing through his life, he comes to a point maybe where Mutt was very, very, very young and he could become an actual father to Mutt. Um, or just giving Indiana Jones something that he didn't have, his own history, creating his own lineage, etc., so that fell flat for me. That that didn't work. The 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 whole ending didn't work. And then when you get the actual ending when they're back in the present or their present, it felt very rushed. I was like, wait, this is almost done. And then you get Marion, boom, bam, boom, and it ends. And it's like, oh, that's bad movie making. You know, I hate when they rush endings like that because that's the emotional stuff I wanted. And maybe because we didn't get it because we went back to that time and it didn't make sense to me. I don't know. I, I feel like there was a better final act than what we got. Also missed opportunities, right? So when they say, when Indiana Jones says, oh, let's go meet my friend on their quest because he can help them, how does it not turn out to be short round? It's Antonio Banderas. Meanwhile, I didn't even know it was Antonio Banderas as, as I was watching it. But I was like, how do you miss out on building that up, he keeps saying he has a friend, and it's not short round? Come on. that That's that's lame. All in all, totally worth watching. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, you know, I'm glad I saw it. And, you know, now we just see where it goes from here. Okay, let's talk about Barbenheimer. Holy shit, these movies. Barbie and Oppenheimer. I did not do the double feature. But I did watch Oppenheimer first, and then eventually watched Barbie. I I don't know how to talk about these. Oppenheimer, I feel like I need to see a few more times, because it really is visual after visual after visual, scene after scene, tons of information. You're going back and forth in time. You're uh, also going back in term, back and forth in terms of viewpoint. You know, the scenes shot in color, the scenes shot in black and white. Um, it, it's just a stunning tapestry of a movie. And, uh, you know, it is something that I've noticed about Nolan movies that many, this is not a new thought, but along with the actors speaking and the background noise, there's always, obviously music, but there's always some, like noise. There's, there's noise to it that I swear works on a hypnotic level that just makes you ang angsty and, and nervous and on edge. It's like the beginning of The Dark Knight where you just hear that one sort of note. Just It just feels like it's just off 
until you come across like the Joker, right? So, um, really great movie. You know, I've loved Robert Downey Jr. as an actor forever, ever since the 80s. You know, I am not new to him because of Iron Man. We're talking weird science and back to school, the pickup artist. Less Than Zero is one of my favorite movies. Is one of my favorite 80s movies. Is one of my favorite movies. It's dark. Johnny B. Good. I mean, he's just a really great actor, right? When he did his turn in Chaplin, everybody was like, oh my God, Robert Downey Jr. Um, he killed it in this movie. Man, he's so good. They all are. I just, what a stunningly... Um, emotional powerhouse of a movie in terms of acting. Now, I saw the twist coming. I mean, it's not really a twist, but I saw the one thing coming. I did not see the consequences of that coming, which made the made that section really great near the end. Um, yeah, so good. Just so, I, I've talked before. I love the whole Oppenheimer thing ever since I saw a movie with uh, David Strathairn played Oppenheimer and his quote has been in, like, my list of quotes forever since the first time I heard it. Um, I knew a lot about this information, but the whole stuff with the character that Robert Downey Jr. played, I didn't know any of that. Um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, powerful, um, you know, just just great, right? Can't talk enough about it. And then I go to see Barbie. Again, not the same day, later. Holy shit, I did not see this movie being the one that I would think more about, uh, you know, compared to Oppenheimer. I didn't think that this would be the movie that I would get overly emotional with or have so much fun with and come away and go, that was just clever, well-written, beautifully acted. It totally embraced the absurdity of what it was trying to do and yet still managed managed to not be just fluff, except when it wanted to be fluff, right? It reminds me of why I adored the first Brady Bunch movie, where it was this family stuck in the 60s, but they were living in present time, and all the funny jokes you got out of it. But it really, like, that was it. That was the point. It was camp, and... There, were, there weren't any larger meanings to it other than, you know, let's have a really good time and make a really funny movie. Poke fun of, uh, at the Brady Bunch franchise and just go from there. That's what this movie does too, and it does it well, but it has so much to say. And I was so surprised, you know, coming away from this movie and going, I'm still thinking about it. Still think about it days later, weeks later, and... Um, Margot Robbie killed it. I never really took Margot Robbie as like the, the a, a brilliant actress, right? She's she's an actress. She's she has some um, claim to fame with certain parts in big movies, important movies, or or just great movies. Um, but this movie, I just felt like she got it right. Like she obviously understood what it was she was trying to do with this movie between her facial expressions the delivery of lines her emotionality she landed every part of it i didn't think she was out of it for one second 
I'm not totally convinced Ryan Gosling was the best choice for Ken, but he was fine. Um, Helen Mirren as the narrator was really great. I wanted more of that, though. And then you had the whole mother-daughter story that takes place in the real world, that that's why Barbie goes to the real world. And that was, you know, very emotional. I love that they were Latin characters. That's awesome. But then their story didn't really play out fully because it gets, the whole movie gets like hit with this Ken aspect and then it becomes his story. And I thought, I thought it played a little bit too much on that. I totally understand why, but I thought it derailed what was going on in the first half of the movie with Barbie and this family. And I wanted more resolution with that and with Barbie but then we got this whole Ken War thing, you know. So, okay, fine. You know, it is what it is. Um, the visuals are wonderful. Uh, a lot of the side characters. Weird Barbie is amazing. Um, Michael Sarah is is funny. Uh, I didn't like Will Farrell, but then I never liked Will Farrell. John Cena, I just don't get why people think he's funny. I don't think he's funny at all. Uh, Rhea Perlman has a major part in in this movie in terms of the character that she plays i think she's fine i don't think she was as strong of an actor um as they wanted right like i get her emotional connection i i got the scenes those scenes were powerful i felt like she um wasn't quite up to where everybody else was unfortunately uh, all to say, though, I would totally campaign for this movie to be selected as, you know, best picture, best director. And I'm fucking serious. Like, even Margot Robbie, best actress, you know. I think, don't sleep on this movie. I mean, it it just has the things that made it such a cultural hit. Not just a big movie hit. This was a cultural hit because of what it did with Oppenheimer, but just the movie itself and how it continued weeks after to just, you know, rumble along, you know. I really do believe that I feel like if you are a podcaster, a geek podcaster that covers comics and movies and video games, blah, 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 and you reviewed the seventh Transformer movie and the fifth Indiana Jones movie and the 287th Marvel movie, but you didn't review Barbie for one reason or another, you're a coward. You're a coward. Because this is exactly the type of movie that geek podcasting should be about, you know? Because if you can do, like I said, all those movies and you're excited about the Super Mario Brothers movie and you're excited about the Spider-Verse movies and the Teenage Mutant Ninja, all these movies about comics or toys or video games and you didn't review Barbie, coward. Cowards. All right. All right, let's wrap it up with Blue Beetle, a movie that I really adored, that I had fun with. And fully knowing that DC has had a roller coaster of um, attention over the past year when it comes to their movie output and just, you know, all the controversy and whatever else, the, the, whether it's warranted or not. This movie, um, certainly I, I know people were, you know, nervous about it. I certainly was too. I wasn't sure where, where it was going to fall, right? So in terms of DC movies, 
you have things like Man of Steel, uh, Batman versus Superman, um, Zack Snyder's Justice League on one end of the spectrum. On the other is Shazam and Black Adam and Flash. And in the middle, you have a movie like Wonder Woman, right? That I feel is the best example of where DC movies should play. Um, I feel like this movie is closer to that middle. You know, it's more on the Shazam Wonder Woman side than Wonder Woman Man of Steel side. It's it's not Shazam goofy. It's not quite as as for lack of a better word, pure like Wonder Woman is. And but yet it also isn't like Aquaman to to a degree, right? Like I feel Aquaman is close to Wonder Woman, but it still has some moments that are more like the other end. Um so, you know, this whole it, it's close. It's close to Wonder Woman uh Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Blue Beetle. It's like this middle section that I wish they would play more in. The biggest success for this movie is just the comic book accuracy between the the bug the ship, the costumes uh, that he got to wear a practical suit for a while, the design of Carapax was like right out of an 80s comic. It's like right out of me picking up Blue Beetle number one by Len Wein and Paris Cullens. Uh, it's all there. Like, I was so amazed at that um, aspect. So it's designed well. The special effects hold up. I love the family. I love the family dynamic, of course, me being Hispanic. Um, Jolo Maradueña killed it. I think he was really spot on with his character. And I think all of his experience with Cobra Kai just prepped him for this movie. So he felt comfortable. He felt comfortable in the action scenes. He kept uh, felt comfortable in the dramatic scenes. I wish he was a little younger, not post-college graduate, you know, I guess it makes sense why they upgraded him, but then, you know, he's... I wanted him to be a little younger. I wanted his sister to be a little younger. I just wanted it to be... Or or maybe they stayed away from that because that's Shazam territory, and then in that case, it sort of makes sense. Um, it is totally Iron Man meets Spider-Man and Power Rangers and whatever, but that all worked for me. As I said, the visuals are great. The Nana stuff was hilarious. Uh, the villain was fine. Carapax was fine. Again, the visuals were, were really good. Even his backstory made sense. I was not a fan of Susan Sarandon as Victoria, Victoria Cord. That didn't work for me. She doesn't have this, mm, villain weight that, that you need, even if she's going to play a quote unquote normal character. So that didn't work for me. Also, uh, Bruna Marchesini, yeah, just not enough experience, I think, to carry that role as the love interest. I also don't know what to think about this whole edition of, okay, so Ted Cord has a family, and they are also Hispanic. I forget where they come from, South, South American or, or Latin American, I forget. But that they have to be that because that's what Jaime is, and, and even that he has a daughter so that it's also her legacy as well as Jaime. I don't know. I, I, I understand some of why they did that, but I also think Bruna's character could have been someone else. Could have been someone that he knew uh, from high school that made it, you know, all the way up to this company. And she also learned something. 
I don't know, maybe that would have taken away from her sister, from his sister, who, uh, you know, is an important part to the whole thing. I don't know. So um, that part didn't work for me. Um, but again, as I mentioned, the whole family thing, this is why a movie of Latin and Hispanic characters made by Latin and Hispanic creators with the actors who are also Latin and Hispanic, this is why it's going to matter because there there is a lot that I understand fundamentally and I'm sure that people who are even more immersed in the language and the culture probably understand even more. First of all, little things like the Vix joke. Um, but to larger things, like when Victoria's people goes after the family in their home and Blue Beetle is trying to help them, but then he gets captured and things happen with the father, that whole scene had me just holding my breath because it is everything that families go through in terms of, you know, the immigration and customs enforcement and families getting separated and things happening during those moments because of high emotion. I mean, it. I understood the parallel they were making there. And I'm not sure, you know, maybe people would see that, but other people might just think, oh, you know, it's bad guys going rounding up the, the family and stealing away Jaime from his family and then, you know, what happens to the father. But it's more to that, right? And I was, I love that. I love that they made that a commentary, whether you got it or not. Um, yeah, I was really gutted with what happened with the father. I, I thought for sure it was a bait and switch, that it would come around by the end, but no, it didn't. And wow, that really destroyed me. That really hit me uh, hard as I was watching it. You know, when you watch these movies uh, after, you know, this is, as I said, this is like the 350th superhero movie in the past, you know, decade plus. Uh, when you get to the end of them, you're like, well, I don't have to see that movie again, right? This was not that kind of movie for me. I really can't wait to see it again. And I asked my brother and his family, uh, because they watch all this stuff, what they thought of it, and they super enjoyed it. They, they're a family that, you know, when you want to get the view of like a general audience, that's a general audience, you know, um, they liked, he liked Black Adam, but yet he hated Flash and he hated Fury of the Gods, but this one he really liked and, and, you know, as a family and as a father and just by himself, someone who's been watching movies like this and playing video games, you know, he's, he gets it, and he was like, "This is this was a good movie for him." So, yeah, Blue Beetle. If you haven't seen it for one reason or another, give it a chance um, because I think you might be pleasantly surprised, especially if you like Cobra Kai. I mean, you're gonna like the actor. So, yeah. Um, all right, so that's it. That's it for my movie watch. I still haven't seen the new Mission Impossible. Still haven't seen the new Transformers. Still haven't seen the new Spider Verse. There's a lot that I haven't seen, and there's a lot of stuff coming up that I'm looking forward to. So uh, I will update you when I can. Timeline Trivia Tuesday, Part 2, for August of uh, 2023. I need to go back to Part 1 for 30 years ago, August of 1993. We have uh, 30 years of Hellboy, character created by writer-artist Mike Mignola, 
The character first appeared in San Diego Comic-Con Comics number two in August of 1993, as published by Dark Horse. And he was listed as the world's greatest paranormal investigator. And the four-page black and white story said that he would be coming in 1994. And it was a story by Mike Mignola, but also John Byrne on script and emotional support. So happy 30 years to Hellboy. Okay, let's continue with our August anniversaries, celebrating anniversaries, comic book history, and trivia 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and 60 years ago. 40 years ago, August of 1983, with her movie only a year away, the Supergirl title gets a refresh. Daring new adventures of Supergirl becomes simply Supergirl with with issue 13. She gets a new logo. She gets to celebrate one year of that volume, a new villain known as Black Star, and of course, a new costume. 40 years ago, DC released their first graphic novel entitled Star Raiders by Elliot S. Magan, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez on art and company. The cover was by Stephen Hickman, loosely inspired by the Atari game. This was the line of graphic novels that were more or less square-shaped. And I believe in one of the Meanwhile columns by Dick Giordano, he called them albums or graphic albums, maybe because of their dimensions. I've never read this story, considering my love for Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and of Atari Force and of this format, I'm surprised I have yet to read it. The first graphic novel that I had in this format was Hunger Dogs. I think I still have Me and Joe Priest. And in this particular line, they only released seven graphic novels. We also got Thriller Number 1, 40 years ago, which I talked about in a Meanwhile Monday. Uh, and Vigilante Number 1, the start of that Baxter run. After first appearing in New Teen Titans Annual 2, The Vigilante finally gets his own series by, by writer Marv Wolfman, Keith Pollard, Pencils, Dick Giordano, Inker, Todd Klein, Letterer, Anthony Tallon, Colorist. That's a, a great creative team. Uh, the character behind the mask had been a supporting character in New Teen Titans for a while, created by Wolfman and Perez, and now as the vigilante gets his own title, which would run for 50 issues. Perhaps it was DC's response to Punisher. Um, I I don't think I've ever really gone into the origin of Vigilante just yet, into the origin of his creation. But it feels like, you know, that it feels like Marv Wolfman wanting to play in that sandbox. Do not get me started on the portrayal of Vigilante on the Peacemaker TV show. That is just dreadful. Over at Marvel, 40 years ago, August of 1983, Marvel continuing their miniseries, uh, their line of miniseries, with Magic, one of four, by Claremont, John Buscema, Tom Palmer. This miniseries freaked me out as a kid. Seeing demonic versions of the X-Men, seeing Kate Pride being so evil, the way Buscema draws Belasco. It's a great story. It's a great story, great origin story. It's creepy as heck, though. Um, At least I thought so when I was a kid. With issue 125, the Defenders title becomes the New Defenders, 
with a new lineup that had been growing for a few issues. I didn't start with 125, but eventually I would pick up Defenders when it was the new Defenders. Thor 337, 40 years ago, begins the highly influential and creative Walt Simonson run on Thor with John Workman and company. The first appearance of Better Ray Bill, the first appearance of Better Ray Thor, that cover of him smashing the old Thor logo, making way for the new one. You can listen to episodes of CGS where we continue our coverage on that run. Um, I made mention that, you know, this version of Thor and the Asgardians feels like Simonson saying to Marvel, we had Kirby's new gods before he created the new gods. All you have to do is mess around with the Asgardians and boom, you have every story you could ever want to tell within that Jack Kirby, new gods, eternals framework And you can have it with Thor as your lead. You know, it was just waiting for someone to do them justice. And that's what that run is. And then your question for 40 years ago, August of 1983, comes from Marvel Tales starring Peter Porker, the the spectacular Spider-Ham. Volume 1, issue number 1 by Tom DeFalco, Mark Mark Armstrong, edited by Larry Hama. Those, uh, let's see, Tom DeFalco, Mark Armstrong, they're the creators of Spider-Ham, as well as Larry Hama, as well as Stan Lee. He even gets a nod. So this was the first appearance of Spider-Ham, Peter Porker, Captain America-Cat, the Daily Beagle, Hulk Bunny. I mean, funny animal books. I love them, and I love this concept. So um, your question comes from this first issue featuring another anthropomorphic version of a Marvel character, specifically Ghost Rider. So the funny animal version of Ghost Rider was created by Steve Meller. What was that character's name? What was that character's superhero name? Onward to 50 years ago, August of 1973, Captain Marvel 29, Story, Pencils, and Coloring by Jim Starlin. This is the first solo issue Jim Starlin would do without Mike Friedrich taking over the book fully. And as it says on the cover, he's coming your way, the most cosmic superhero of all. Don't dare miss the big change in Marvel in the thriller we call Metamorphosis. So this is where he would grant, he would get his Protector of the Universe title, his cosmic awareness, his hair goes from white to blonde. There's just all kinds of Marvel cosmic stuff, origin, retconning, and revamping, and refreshing. And this is where Jim Starlin fully takes it over, and it becomes, you know, the cosmic stuff that we still talk about to this day. Uh, 50 years ago, Batman 253, in a story by Denny O'Neill, and art by Irv Novick and Dick Giordano. We have Batman meeting the Shadow, in a story called Who Knows What Evil. And this issue came out uh, a month or so after the Shadow first issue came out. And this issue has a Mike Kaluta cover. Denny O'Neill was also writing the Shadow comic, one of the few times where Shadow and Batman met. Also from DC, Girls Love Stories comes to an end 
after 180 issues, a series that began in 1949. And in Weird Weird Worlds 8, we got the first appearance of Iron Wolf by Howard Chaikin with a script by Denny O'Neill. Uh, let's see, Iron Wolf would appear in the last three issues of Weird Worlds, and that character was heavily influenced by the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robin Hood, and the 1948 film The Three Musketeers, and this character would have a small legacy in the DC universe. And then your question for 50 years ago, August of 1973, comes from E-Man number one, from Charlton Comics. This was E-Man's first appearance as he tangles with the brain from Sirius. This series would run 10 issues until 1975. It would then move to First Comics and other publishers. Your writer who co-created E-Man was Nick Cootie. Who was the artist that co-created E-Man? Finally, let's go 60 years ago. For uh, August of 1963, we have Tales to Astonish 49, Ant-Man Becomes Giant Man for the first time, Fantastic 420, the first appearance of the Molecule Man, who would eventually uh, be part of that whole, I'm a villain, I have to wear purple and green colors on my costume, Journey into Mystery 97, the Tales of Asgard backup stories begin, which I think sometimes were more interesting than the main Thor stories, and that would run for about four years on and off. Amazing Spider-Man 6, the first appearance of the half-man, half-reptile lizard, continuing Marvel's purple and green villain coloring. At DC, we had Green Lantern 24 by John Broom and Gil Kane, the first appearance of not a lizard, but the shark. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen 72, is when Jimmy gets inducted into the Legion of Superheroes as an honorary member. It's also the first appearance of Prody 2. And then your question for 60 years ago, from Brave and the Bold 50, the title has moved from being just an anthology series or just a tryout book, especially with the success of Justice League of America. And, it, uh, and then they even dipped into strange sports but now it was going to become a team-up book. And this issue was by Bob Haney and George Rousseau. Who are the two characters that kick off the Brave and the Bold team-up era? Here are your answers. 40 years ago, August 1983, the character of Ghost Rider becomes the anthropomorphic Goose Rider. That's right, Goose Rider. 50 years ago, August of 1973, who created E-Man? The writer was Nick Cootie. The artist was Joe Staten. And then 60 years ago, August of 1963, who were the two characters that make up the very first team-up in Brave of the Bold 50? That would be Green Arrow and the Martian Manhunter. How did you do on those questions? We will continue this in September. Does your podcast sound like this? Show I'm a host. My name is Stephen, and a thousand miles over there to my right is another host, Mr. Ed Moore. Howdy, folks. And let me say, well, what if it sounded like this instead? For show I'm a host. My name is Stephen, 
And a thousand miles over there to my right is another host, Mr. Ed Moore. Howdy, folks. And let me say. Well, now it can. All right. Sorry to sound like a used car salesman here, but my name is Stephen Orr, and I host a variety of podcasts, such as Just Another Fanboy, The Superman Super Show, and Hither Came Conan. But I'm also trying to get my foot into the podcast editing game. I mean, I have been recording and editing my own shows for years, and dang it, I want to cash in on that. So (laughs) tell me, do you love podcasting but hate editing? Do you have a number of episodes recorded but no time at all to get them edited for release? Do you need help and you just aren't sure what to do? Well, I'm here to give you a solution. Hire me. I'll clean up your audio, beef up your sound, remove all your ums and your throat clearings and sneezes and burps, and I'll add your music and whatnot. And you know what? My prices are super reasonable. Just reach out to me at stevenorelse at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-E-V-E-N-O-R-R else at gmail.com. And we can talk. Tell me what you need and I'll let you know what I can do for you. And more importantly, quote you a cost. How do you know if I'm any good? Well, I edited this, didn't I? Stevenorelse at gmail.com. Email me today. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of August 23rd, starting with Fantagraphics Underground, X Amount of Comics Softcover, because quantity over quality, by Don Simpson of Megaton Man fame. This is the unauthorized climax to 1963, the most famous never-completed masterpiece in comics history, Image Comics 1963 by Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, Rick Veach, is finally given the irreverent and completely unauthorized 72-page climax no one ever asked for. Written and drawn by Simpson, who was the original letterer, inker, and logo designer of 1963, in an authentic, old-school manner, X Amount is a comic for the ages that may finish all this off the Silver Age once and for all. This is $20. So just like I talked about way back in December of 2021, my Sonic Disruptors Challenge, take a story, a comic, a title, a premise, a, a, a pitch that was never completed, never saw the light of day, bootleg the hell out of it, and give it a wrap-up, right? I think that's amazing. Like, I want more of these. I want Firestorm Corona by Michelle Fife. I want the second New Teen Titans X-Men team-up by Phil Jimenez, you know? I'm down. Let's do it. Let's let's get these comics out there. From Fair Square, we have Not a New York Love Story softcover by Julian Veloge and Andreas Cafe. Is this a dream or reality? He can feel her presence. He knows she's there, but she isn't. She takes him on a trip around New York in all the places he wouldn't go before, before the accident. From Coney Island to the Lower East Side, he's turning the pages of his life with the one he loved, the one he lost. This is not a romantic comedy. It's a drama, a tale of emotions, grief, and a love letter to a city like no other in the world. The kind of story you will need to read twice to peel its many layers. 
So that's $17.99. Loved that premise. Uh, loved what I saw. So I wanted to give that a shout out. From Silver Sprocket, we have of Thunder and Lightning graphic novel from uh, debut author Kimberly Wang, Corporate Magic Girls in the Apocalypse. In a world where pop media meets military power, two idle super soldiers are locked in a world-ending conflict on behalf of their corporate nations as Ragnarok looms on the horizon. Yet Magni and Demo, young icons created for the sole purpose of eliminating the other, find their closest reflection in their opposite. Now completing their mission means destroying the one who understands them most. A thrilling two-tone sci-fi graphic novel growing the seeds of hope from the gravel of Apocalypse. $13.99. You can find preview pages of this story on the Silver Sprocket website. From DC, we have the first issue of The Penguin from Tom King and Raphael De La Tour. We also finally get the 12th issue of Dark Knights of Steel. Yay! From Marvel, Marvel Unleashed 104 by Kyle Starks, Jesus Herdavas. This is Legion of Super Pets Marvel style. So Craven abducts Lockjaw at the same time a local scientist mixed up with AIM goes missing. So it's up to Throg the Frog of Thunder, Redwing the Falcon, Chewy the Cat Flurkin, Lucky the Pizza Dog, Bats the Ghost Dog, and their scrappy new ally D-Dog to save the day. $4.99. Not quite anthropomorphic comics like I talked about, like I talked about in the Timeline Tuesday, but close enough. I do enjoy the whole Marvel Pets thing. From um, Also from Marvel, Immortal Thor number 1 by Al Ewing, Martin Kokolo, $6.99, yikes. Um, this is the start of a whole new story for Thor. Uh, Al Ewing riffing a little bit off of what he did for Immortal Hulk. And I will talk a little bit more about this issue when I get to the next section about Jonathan Hickman's Gods. So those are your recommendations for the week of 20, uh, August 23rd. Let's go to the final installment of Who Are the Gods? One sheets that are appearing throughout Marvel Comics this month. We get three of them, three of them this week from Amazing Spider-Man 32, Immortal Thor number one, and Venom 24. Amazing Spider-Man 32 by Zeb Wells and Patrick Gleason. All of the one-sheets are drawn by the artist of that particular title, but it's written by Jonathan Hickman. This wasn't initially marked in previews as a gods uh, tie-in, but uh, apparently it is. And the story features Craven and Queen Goblin. The one-sheet, we are back at Sevalith, which was the setting for the one-sheet in Scarlet Witch number 7. Wynne, the avatar of the powers that be, has come to collect Dimitri, who was also part of Scarlet Witch number seven. Uh, and Wynne is claiming that things are about to go south in the real world. And then they fly away from the vampire world in what looks like a, a gothic hot air balloon that might have some kind of AI presence. Not a lot of information there, but... Um, we are wrapping up uh, this story, so you'll see where it connects. In Immortal Thor number one, 
Uh, this was a weird one. So we have a box, and then we have the Asgardian known as Tyr, the one that's missing a hand, climbing into the box as if it was some kind of magic show. And then he closes the lid once he's inside, and then the final panel we are left with just the box in a spotlight again. He's talking to an off-panel voice who says to hear who says to Tear, uh, he has to let go of that name because that is the name that they call you in the world out there. What do we think of that world? To which Tear responds, it's a lie. The voice continues, you deserve better, you deserve the real world, there's that term again, or that phrase again, and that's what's waiting for you. All you have to do is get in. Tyr asks if, uh, he asks, what if I don't like it? Which the voice responds by saying, you will love it. Very weird. I think this was one of the weirder ones. In fact, I think it's one of the cooler ones so far. And I talked in the previous digest uh, about the one sheet from Uncanny Avengers and how it, how it had a very real Jack Kirby feel, multiverse, um, new gods, eternals, how they are parallel. And I thought, oh, is this Hickman reshaping Tear, reshaping one of Jack Kirby's creations into something else? Maybe something um, connecting him to another part of the multiverse, another god, another new god. Um, if it's Tear in Marvel 616, then, and that's the lie, then what is the real world? And why does that phrase remind me of Jack Kirby's fourth world? You know, uh, that's two one sheets this week that say real world. And I don't know, just all of it is making my head spin, but I love it. And then Venom 24 by Al Ewing and Sergio Davila. This story features Eddie Brock traveling to Latveria. And then the one shot that we get by Hickman, we see Wynn and, and Dimitri in that hot air vessel, uh, arriving in New York City. Dimitri is looking at the device that he's been holding since uh, Scarlet Witch number seven. We see two beings, the Lion of Wolves and Nimue Dulac, who uh, notice their arrival. And the narration states, all the other strange and wonderful creatures of the shadows run and hide as they should. And that's where we end. So those two connect and then we have that weird tier one in the middle. I have no idea what all this means, but I love all the pieces. And, you know, we'll see what happens once this title begins in October. Okay, there is your Wednesday recommendation and your Wednesday gods uh, discussion for this week. There's that music again, the music for the DC Universe Infinite app. We are going to return to the app. I talked about how I am creating these public lists that you can go to my profile and check out for a, a particular reading experience. So in the digest for August 12th, I gave you my list for all of the first issues 
of titles that I read when I was getting into comics in 1982, 1983, 1984. And I have now created two more lists. I created a list for comics that are reviewed on this podcast, and then also a list of one-shots, specials, and single-issue gems. So the comics that I review on this podcast, that's certainly easy enough. I went back through the past two years plus of the digests, and anything that I reviewed on a digest or in any Daily Rios episode since then, I have put onto the DCU app in this list tons of first issues, like the first issue of Batman 89, Superman 78, Superman Lost number one, New Champions of Shazam number one, I've also dropped complete series like First Issue Special, Superman Space Age, Why the Last Man, or special issues like Nightwing 100, Jon Stewart's first appearance in Green Lantern 87, Flash 800, Wonder Woman 800. Also that you can go to that list and you can go, oh, there's the book that he talked about in a podcast. Um, I'll be sure in future episodes to say, okay, I've read this on the app on the app, so I'm going to post it in one of those lists. And I know I could go back and add even more if I go through all 10, 11 years of the Daily Rios. I wish you could write little notes in your list per issue so that I could say, okay, here's the specific episode where I talked about this book. But, you know, you could probably do a search on my site for like Flash 800 or just just 800, and maybe that'll come up. Or Superman Space Age, if you put in like Space Age, I'm sure it'll come up. So that's a list, and if anything on that list, you're like, oh, I want to hear you talk about that, you could always also email me, and I'll let you know what episode it falls under. And then I created a third list, One-Shot Specials, Single Issue Gems. This was a, a suggestion by CT on Twitter. And this is where, like the title suggests, I drop those one-shot specials or single issues that are just amazing that I've read over the years. Things like Wonder Woman 170, A Day in the Life of Wonder Woman, as told through Lois Lane, which was during the really great Phil Jimenez run. The date issue between Dick and Babs in Birds of Prey issue 8 during the Chuck Dixon run. The Batman special featuring The Wrath that we talked about over on CGS, Green Lantern 81, which was the funeral for Hal Jordan after the final night, Legion 28, that's the acronym Legion, the Hard Labor Birth Issue by Keith Giffen, which is just amazing, Secret Origins 10 telling four different origin stories of the Phantom Stranger, New Teen Titans 38, Who is Donna Troy, duh, Green Lantern Corps, Sinestro Corps, War Special, Zatanna, Everyday Magic, Doom Force, a parody comic from Grant Morrison, Justice League of America 200, and so, 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 so many more. And I'm continuing to add to that list and all the lists. So that's another one. If you just want to read one-offs on certain characters, or maybe it's your way to read a, a one issue from a title that you've never read before, that's a great place to start. So if you have a suggestion for a list that you would like to see based on a creator, a character, or an era, or some other kind of, you know, parameter, please let me know. 
these are fun. I got some followers on some of the lists. Not that I can see who they are, which is kind of weird. Um, but that's great. And uh, I would love to do more. So let me know. Wrap it up. I'll take it. Wrap it up. I'll take it. Well, no more will I shop Wrapping up this digest with just a few topics here. Uh, that I wanted you to know about. First of all, we lost yet another comics veteran, Dan Green, mostly known as an inker, but also as an illustrator, uh, passed away August 19th at the age of 70. Longtime Uncanny X-Men inker with John Romita Jr., Mark Silvestri. He inked Jim Lee's first issue. He also has long runs on Wolverine, Avengers, Worked on Godzilla, Doctor Strange, Captain America, Spider-Man, so many others for Marvel. And he worked with J.M. DeMatteis as illustrator of the Doctor Strange graphic novel Into Shambhala. For DC, worked on Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, JLA, Blood of the Demon, JSA All-Stars, Dial H, Futures, and so, so, so many more. A lot of other creators uh, gave their thoughts uh, once he had passed and uh, there was a, just a really great outpouring of memory for Dan Green. We also learned that Jeff Smith had, uh, you know, Jeff Smith, creator of Bone, is recuperating from a cardiac arrest and is currently in rehab at least when, you know, as in as of early September, um, rehab for recovery. Uh, he's only in his early 60s, uh, but... Uh, yeah, that's scary. And, uh, you know, certainly well wishes for a speedy recovery. And hopefully he can get back to work as well. Uh, we have a few podcast appearances or some podcast releases I wanted you to know about. DC All-Stars Episode 12 featuring top three villains for DC. But not just any villains, not the A-list villains. B, C, D, even, you know, Z-list villains. We had a lot of fun chatting about them pulling out characters from some obscure corners and just giving us a chance to talk about villains on the DC All-Stars podcast. Over on the CGS feed, take a look for Crisis Tapes 25 featuring part one of Adam and I talking about the CW Crisis on Infinite Earths, taking a look at the first three chapters, uh, Supergirl, Batwoman, and Flash. Uh, you know, just a... Um, Way to celebrate 25 episodes on the Crisis Tapes. And then probably by the time you hear this or shortly after, uh, you will hear The Legion Project 42, which was released on Eric's feed and I have yet to release it on mine. This is the start of a Millennium two-parter with Laurel Kent as the focus. And we are coming up on our sixth anniversary in the beginning of September. So that's awesome. Uh, again, you sh that should be released or will be released. It's released on Eric's feed and it will be released on mine. And, you know, I realized that we are close to finishing the Legion project, or I should say that particular volume of the Legion. Um, you know, if we did one episode per month, no annuals, no tales, we would be done with the numbered issues by early to mid-2025. Now, of course, we do the tales, and we have annuals, and we have specials, and we sometimes take tangents. Tangents. So we're going to be done either by the end of 2025 or by 2026. So hopefully 
hopefully we make it. <laughs> um, and finally, I just want to mark that, you know, as college begins again here at the end of August, college and university, uh, I know that my old uh, university has started up again. So that means it is now an, uh, officially one year of not teaching there. And, uh, you know, one whole year that I was not there, uh, which means I've been employed, unemployed for that year. And uh, certainly it's been what? At the end of September, it's going to be three years that I moved back uh, after during the pandemic, um, back to Reading, close to my family. Three years. Yeah. Um, boy, I hope I'm not here <laughs> this time next year. It'd be nice to not... It'd be nice to have my own space again or live in a big city again, you know, or something. So we shall see. All right, that's it. That's it for this wrap-up, short and sweet. You can email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go to the website and the Instagram for The Daily Rios. Follow my Twitter, Twitter. It's Twitter. <laughs> peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. Send me your book club recommendations. Send me your promos. Send me some audio talkback clips. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 632 for Saturday, August 26th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Hi, Barbie. Oh, hi, Alan. There are no multiples of Alan. He's just Alan. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused about that. <laughs>